For April 1st, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 248. Let's put The Rock in a dune buggy. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California... Not destroyed by a tungsten rod in the film G.I. Joe. <laughs> Starring briefly Channing Tatum and Dwayne Johnson. No longer The Rock. He has outgrown, uh, he has outgrown The Rock. Uh, yes. I am Matthew Rather, your host. Here with the panel to overthink G.I. Joe uh, on this special holiday podcast because we're recording it. Matt, 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 Matt. G.I. Joe colon retaliation. Sorry, G.I. Joe retaliation. Um, I actually have not seen the, the first film, so you're going to have to fill me – you're going to have to fill me in on – you know, because uh, it, it was a, you know, a, a cinematic achievement I can only assume worthy of Jean-Luc Godard, uh, judging by the, the second one, which, you know, that raised the stakes uh, an, immeasurable, an immeasurable quantity. Anyway, it's a holiday podcast. We are recording on Easter Sunday. It is – is uh, uh, releasing on April Fool's Day. Visit Overthinking It, um, where our very serious articles will be coming out all day today on uh, Overthinking It. So, uh, panel, your question in honor uh, of G.I. Joe. Um, fill in the blanks. G.I. blank. A real blank hero. Peter Fenzel is on uh, an overthinking it sabbatical somewhere on the Sawmill Parkway uh, in the dark in the rain uh, right now, which he texted me as a terrifying experience. I hope he wasn't driving as he texted that to me, that, <laughs> that he was using some kind of voice recognition software or something. So uh, drink because Fenzel's on the road. Drink because uh, Fenzel is not first in the podcast. Drink because someone else is first in the podcast. Drink because you like to it's matthew belinky hey guys um all right so i'm gonna go with and, and i'm gonna need to, to clarify the spelling this is gonna be gi Bo, a real romantic hero and that is of course Bo with a, a b e a u um and i think the key to understanding this is that uh, channing tatum has a sort of a, a dual persona in hollywood right because he is this sort of like uh this action star you know this this like you know bro brotastic uh, you know dude uh, from the GI Joe movies, uh, but he's also uh, a romantic actor, leading man extraordinaire uh, from such. I'm I'm always going to think of him as uh, from Dear John, but he's been he's been in others too that you guys probably can rattle off uh, before I can. Um, and so that what I think we need to do is like you know really really square this circle and like make some sort of a movie where he is like both the ultimate boyfriend and the ultimate badass um <laughs> which like i don't i don't exactly know what the plot of this is didn't they be make that movie like, already really? and it had reese witherspoon the- and chris pine and someone else in it oh yeah yeah, yeah. that's like what, what is it like you know th- this means war or something yeah exactly that's what it was which is which is not like a live action Bugs Bunny Donald Duck cartoon. <laughs> I feel like that title is mis- oh, and chosen. Tom Hardy. It had Captain word? Kirk, Bane, and uh, Elle Woods from uh, Legally Blonde in it, but not as those characters. Unfortunately, <laughs> that would have been a superior movie. <laughs> and also, you know what? It's the 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 
action romance is a difficult genre to nail. Like the the one that immediately springs to mind is what was it? Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise were in that. Um, what, 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 what it was, was called it? Night um, and Day. Yeah, because presumably one of them is named Night and yeah. one of them is named Day. <laughs> is it just that simple? <laughs> yes, I I think so. Uh, or no, maybe maybe it's a code name because I'm looking at IMDb and Tom Cruise's uh, uh, Tom Cruise's character's name is Roy Miller, and Cameron Diaz's is, is June Havens. Um, wow. Someone needs to. Never mind. I don't. I don't really care why it's called Night. I, I really. I think the gold standard for these sort of like the action romance is probably Romancing the Stone. Right. Uh, but maybe this dates me. The fact or, that like I'm sure I'm or like, like the the first Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know. But like I don't really think of that. But you see that that's not really a romantic. Yeah, there's a girl in it. But like I, what I'm talking about is a movie that really like splits it fifty fifty down the middle and has just as much of this sort of like you know these like two people that are sort of like get to know each other, dislike each other at first. There's an attraction and they sort of get together, and and just as much as sort of like it, it's it's like fun to see this couple and the chemistry of the couple is like a real selling point of the movie. But there's also some legitimate action and like I. Don't definitely remember romancing the stone as being i mean it's right in the title right sure that it's not it's not just about getting the stone it's romancing the stone and i guess it's it, a romance I, it edged in it it edged out uh the princess bride by three years so yeah i guess it's the yeah. i think princess bride also does it but i i mean also princess bride i'm a little hesitant of calling it like an action movie like it is it's it's pretty humble in its action sequences by today's standards yeah there's, there's no, a notable lack of machine guns yeah, but yeah. there there is just an awesome uh, sword fight in it. Yeah, but no, there's no but, amendment no, to the no Constitution that protects our right to bear swords. All right, <laughs> there's romancing I mean, this. Romancing the Stone also gets points for, you know, the Kathleen Turner character actually was a writer of romance novels, and so it's very formalistic yeah. in that way. Uh, hey, yeah. that, is our, that is our special guest, uh, Tom Bowers. Tom, we, I will, uh, I, I, I'm just teasing your presence because we have a lot to say uh, to you in just, in just a little bit. But it is a podcast. You can drink again because it's a podcast with a, a special guest on it. Um, what about, uh, Matt, what about like the African Queen? Go, going yeah, way I mean, back, I, well, going way say, back. Yeah, I mean, like clearly, I don't think the action movie as we think of it nowadays really existed before, like Die Hard. But like, yeah, I think that was a movie where, like, really split down the middle between like building this real relationship between these people and also sort of like you know daring do and sort of like you know adventure and danger and Nazis and I guess not Nazis it's World War One, so Germans, right. proto Nazis. Um, but yeah, like, like it's that, that kind of a movie. So I'm thinking GI Bo is, is more of an attempt to, because Channing Tatum can do that, right? He can be like the sort of like sexy lead in a way that like probably even the rock can't that like the rock is an action star. I don't think the rock will ever be the dude in the romantic comedy who like, you know, the, the sensitive single dad sort of like, he's not going to be sleepless at Seattle rock. Sure. <laughs> the rock is sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. The Rock is going to take the people's Ambien. <laughs> uh, we should push on. Mark Lee, next in the alphabet. Okay. Uh, first of all, just to parse the phrase G.I. Joe, real American hero, which, of course, is what we're riffing off of here. 
Um, there's a sense that, and it's a G.I. Joe, it's just sort of a bit of an everyman type of thing. And yet in spite of that, you know, he, he rises up to be a real hero, right? Um, except for the country that I have in mind, um, it's not so much an everyman that rises up, but it's really the supreme dearest of dear leaders. I am, of course, referring to G.I. Jong-un, real North Korean hero. <laughs> he's really, he's not even the real North Korean hero, he's the only North Korean hero. Because no one's better than the dear leader, the dearest of the dear leaders. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a dear he's a dear American hero. <laughs> or a dear so, North by the way, Korean hero. As far as I know, like Kim Jong Il, and the greatest the, film director, and right, the so source Kim, of all scientific knowledge. Oh yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, this is a serious point I have here. Kim Jong Il, the last president of North Korea. Um, you know, had this huge cult of personality built about him, including as being a, a, an incredible cinephile and the, and the greatest film director of all time, even better than John Chu, director of G.I. Joe Retaliation. Um, Kim Jong-un is just now starting to build up his, um, his own cult of personality and these you know, crazy myths about him being the best film director or basketball player or whatever. Um, so, I mean, he should take this opportunity as he's just now in his administration to... Chris, you know, to really take this idea of G.I. Jong-un, real North Korean hero, and just, like, portray himself as some, like, you know, uh, battlefield badass, um, also professional wrestler, also uh, amazing uh, male stripper as well. Sort of a combination of The Rock and Channing Tatum uh, characters. Um, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, I know you're listening to this podcast. Take our advice. It's free. We're giving it to you. We're very generous. I, uh, Mark, I... One of the things I learned from the film G.I. Joe Retaliation. One is, of many things you learned from this film. Is that North Korea is a nuclear power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, that, uh, and that not only that, they, they have a large number uh, of nuclear, nuclear warheads on missiles ready to, um, ready to, to fire and to self-destruct. So, yeah, they're like all other advanced nuclear nations that have nuclear missiles also with convenient self-destruct. Uh, switches on the North Korea also built that out right uh, all right it's my, it's my turn I'm a very big fan of the progressive insurance commercials and so my entry is uh, is GI flow a uh, a real car insurance hero and the um, it's uh, it's an urban warfare film where uh, flow from the progressive uh, commercials is you know a tactical um, expert who goes uh, in just one long two-hour car chase, uh, causing a lot of damage, but then telling people about uh, progressive car insurance so that they can, you know, fix uh, what has been broken over the course of the over the course of the action movies. It's something that's not. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but like, there's all this destruction that happens in in action movies. Um, in uh, Oh, uh, what was that? What, which one were we watching um, last year? Where they dragged a they dragged a uh, tractor trailer or a co- container or something through the streets of of uh, a Brazilian city? Oh, it was uh, Fast Five, uh, right? And and like all this damage to public and private property. And I thought, who you know who pays for this? Well, the answer is the good people at Progressive Insurance. Um. No, they're going to exercise like the act of God clause to get out of it, out of covering it. I guess so. Uh, that, by the way, like when you mentioned progressive, I thought you were going to bring up the kind of odd uh, internet saga of their incredibly bad PR moment when someone basically said that progressive insurance 
um, was like sort of suing uh, to so that they wouldn't have to pay out a claim against someone who whose whose family member died in a car crash or something horrible like that. Does this ring a bell to anyone? It was like right, and they sort of auto tweeted something back that that made it far worse. Yeah, it was like a canned PR response that came out of progressives. Twitter account, like, you know, the, the thank you for your feedback. Uh, thank you. No, something like, a, you know, yeah. semi apologizing or something, but it, they all came with the flows, you know, the, the, the mascot with her smiling yeah. lipstick face, so cocked slightly to the side. It was an incredibly creepy uh, effect. Yeah. Every time I see her, I want her to be the Snapple lady. Does anyone else remember? I'm, I'm just going to date myself with really old culture references today. Like, hello from Snapple. Sort of like I like I like the idea of like having your spokesperson be this sort of like chipper, sort of like not overtly sexualized, just sort of like you know, wholesome woman next door, middle America type. You know, not to say that I like Flo from Progressive. You know, as a mascot, I I find I, I find it to be like way too. Way too smug, way too—I don't know. There's something about it that rubs me the wrong way. Although, like, no, no insurance. I'm not—I'm not enjoying the man made out of money either from Geico. So, none of the insurance companies are winning me over with their brilliant ad ad mascots right now. You know what? As a New Yorker, you don't get to comment on car insurance commercials. <laughs> That's a good point. You're not even in the market. You don't know. You don't know the pain of of. Uh trying to get decent car insurance for less than, you know, a king's ransom. Uh, Tom Bowers is our special guest tonight. Tom, G.I. Blank. Okay, so uh, we're going to go with G.I. Jones. Uh, Not Indiana Jones, not Jim Jones, uh, not even Jones from Animal Farm, but Jones Soda. G.I. Jones, a real carbonated hero. Okay. Uh, Jones Soda is a beverage company based in Seattle. Uh, which is uh, which has its own uh, uh, its own its own distribution in in uh, the Northwest in Canada, and is sort of was positioned to take on the uh, take on the, the the big dogs Coke and Pepsi and all that sort of thing. But they tried to expand into the canned market from the bottle market a few years ago, and were uh, were soundly trounced. So it's sort of a Tucker, a man in his dream, sort of of the uh, of the carbonated beverage world. Right. I think they're they're a role model to look up to. They're still they're still out there. They're still doing their thing. They haven't been quite uh, uh, crumbled to dust yet, but uh, they're fighting the good fight. <laughs> they haven't succumbed to Cobra's evil plot yet. That's right. By, by Cobra, I mean, of course, Coca-Cola. Cobra. Coke-Cobra. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant Cobra, the, the, the health insurance. <laughs> That's all, it's, which is a whole other thing about you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cobra, uh, Cobra, the health insurance, is the enemy in GI Flow, and, and uh, car insurance is the, <laughs> the good guy. There's the joke. God, I wish I had had that five minutes ago. So, uh, uh, Tom Bowers, uh, his podcast is The Geek Agenda. You can get that at uh, what's the website? TheGeekAgenda.com. It is thegeekagenda.com, and the the is very important there. Otherwise, you're going to get like a software developer in Italy or uh-huh. something. Yeah. So, the hey, geek a geek agenda. The geek agenda is having espresso. April. I keep Fools. thinking I need to. I keep thinking I need to have that guy on the show so that we can, you know, settle our differences or whatever, and you know, join forces and fight the, you know. Cobra insurance or whatever. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so uh, so uh, tell us a little. I, I know I've been a guest. I've been a guest on your podcast. Tell us a little bit about you what you do. Uh, what you do on uh, uh, on your podcast? What, what we do is we. Uh, um, you know, there's a certain there's a certain sort of uh, um, remove a certain sort of. Uh, 
what's the uh, a reserve that you have here on Overthinking It? Because you have to be able to take the pop culture and examine it from all of these different angles and analyze it through all these different filters. Uh, what we do is a little more uh, close to the bone. We, we the, the tagline is uh, celebrating the super enthusiast within all of us. So it's all about uh, the true believers, uh, fans who uh, interact with pop culture to such a, a chemical degree and what that how that has affected their lives. That's the main thing we do. Otherwise, uh, it's just an excuse to sit around and talk about zombies and lightsabers and, you know, dodecahedrons and, and such. But, uh, but we, we tend to approach things more from the fans, the fan point of view. The, and, the and dodecahedron are... from, from the phantom, the phantom toll booth. <laughs> my, my, uh, angles, the, yeah. my angles are many. My sides are not few. I'm the dodecahedron. And who are you? I, Right, sure, yeah. Do, <laughs> wow. do you contradict yourself? Therefore, you contradict yourself. You are large. You contain multitudes. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, and not, not, we're about non sequiturs, too. We're, we're big on that. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, uh, excellent. So, you can check out that podcast at thegeekagenda.com. Uh, and I was, a, um, uh, I was a guest on it. So, a uh, busy, busy day in, in the popular culture. Busy, busy uh, time on overthinking it. I want, to, um, I want to just kind of catalog a couple of things uh, that we're doing. Uh, if you're listening to this, it's April 1st, um, which means you should go to overthinking it and read our serious articles. If you're listening to this after April 1st, uh, visit overthinkingit.com slash underthinkingit um, to see what I'm uh, to see what I'm talking about. Uh, in addition, I want to put um, I want to put uh, a little uh, a little just bug in your ear about something that's coming up. Um, there's going to be uh, coming up a uh, an event. These uh, one of these Star Trek. Speaking of being a super enthusiast, um, one of these uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation high definition remastered episode screenings in movie theaters on uh, Thursday, April 25th, and as an initiative that started on the forums, I think we're going to try to put together an event, a live event, probably in New York, Los Angeles, and Boston, where we can go see these, uh, where we can go see Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and 2 in the theater, and then an online event where everyone who has seen it around the country can get together and uh, talk about it in a massive, massively multiplayer online Google Hangout or something like that. So, uh, speaking of of nerds, um, the first <laughs> the first you- sci-fi convention I, I ever went to, the first you know handful of sci-fi conventions I ever went through went to were uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation Star Trek conventions focusing on the Next Generation in the early nineties. So, um, I am definitely a member of that fandom and. So I will be there uh, munching my popcorn watching Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and 2. I will be there as well, sir. Ah, excellent. Um, great. And then uh, we also have a, um, we also have a, uh, a special series actually going on. Uh, we've produced videos um, occasionally on Overthinking It, and we're trying to make it more of a regular thing. Uh, and so we've taken, taken advantage of Eurovision, uh, the well, I the, the, let's hold off on saying what it is. We've taken advantage of Eurovision to start a um, uh, to start a video series, and you can uh, look at our channel on YouTube. Uh, they're all we post them all on Overthinking It. So if you look at Overthinking It, you'll see them. But 
But if you click through to our channel and subscribe to our channel, uh, you can get notifications of them automatically. Um, you can also search for Overthinking It on YouTube, and you will find us. Just you know, click on the little Otis icon uh, that pops up. But what is Eurovision? What are we doing for it? And why would we want to make videos about it? Uh, for that, I think I should refer to the question to our resident expert, longtime fan of Eurovision, a super enthusiast in his own right, um, Matt Belinke. Matt, what's Eurovision? Yeah. I mean, Eurovision is one of these things that I, I honestly do not understand why it's not more popular in the United States, if only for the sort of snark value, because as we know, Americans love to feel superior to Europeans and to make fun of them in their, their train-riding, uh, cheese-eating ways. Um, and this is the kind of thing where, like, you know, even if, if Bravo were to sort of cover it ironically, to sort of snark on it, uh, you know, that, that, that I think would be a big deal. That would be bigger than the Puppy Bowl. Um, but nobody shows it on American TV. It's basically unheard of here. But it's, uh, it's a singing contest for Europe. So imagine if the winner of American Idol, then that was only the beginning of a much larger show where the winner of American Idol had to face the winners of, of Mexican Idol and Canadian Idol and, and Peruvian Idol. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, for, for the whole Western Hemisphere. Um, and so uh, Eurovision is all the countries of Europe have to select one singer or band with an original song. This is the key, that you have to write a song that has not uh, been released before um, the Eurovision process begins. I mean, by now, it's not that you can't sing it before the night of Eurovision, and indeed, uh, it's in our benefit that many of the songs have been released uh, by now, because we are reviewing them all in great detail, covering them so that uh, by the time Eurovision rolls around, we're going to know uh, which countries to root for and which countries to, to, to sit there like smug Americans and make fun of their terrible taste in music, right. as if we've never produced any bad music because of culture. <laughs> hey, 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 I got a new slogan for overthinking it. Um, we cover what's too tacky and obscure for Bravo to cover. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually works out pretty well. <laughs> I have a question about watch the, what, question watch about what, Watch what crappens. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Uh, I have a question about the the song construction. So do they have to be written by the artists that are singing them? Or is this because the song is meant to represent a country collectively, right? So is there some sort of think tank in there trying to put it all together from uh, various pieces? Or do they uh, rely on the artist to sort of try to communicate it themselves? How is it all channeled? I mean, I think the, the country has great leeway in choosing who represents them. And in fact, that person does not have to be a representative. It's not like the, the writing for president where you have to be a natural-born citizen. And in fact, uh, one of the most famous Eurovision winners uh, for Switzerland in the early 80s, uh, Celine Dion, who is, of course, Canadian, but uh, speaks French and was very popular and agreed to pinch hit for Switzerland. Um, I don't really care for this. And in fact, most of the time, the person will be from the country, but it's certainly not a rule. And even in the case where the singer will be from the country, you can, and, and many people do, have some sort of slick Swiss, uh, you know, uh, Swedish production team. You know, right. the same people who are writing sort of top 40 radio hits write their songs. So, um, and, and I mean, I, th- I think your question is more, more sort of like assuming that like the song has to be the sort of nationalistic enterprise that sort of tries to capture something inherently Azerbaijanian exactly. about the there, country. There's- there's no one yeah. trying to like. How, how does this? How does this uh, chorus best represent Belgium? That's not going on. I mean, unless, some unless, of the you're songs Belarus. Like unless you're Belarus from that one year, the right. song was "I Love Belarus." Something, something, something. It was fantastic. Right. It was. It was like very, very. Um, 
very Belarusian. I mean, definitely, I, I would say it's it's not quite half and half, but like a third of the songs are going to definitely express some nationalistic pride. I think a lot of it depends on the selection process, varies from country to country. And in the countries where there's public voting, where you do, uh, it is American Idol, um, maybe that sort of lends itself better to like, um, you know the the country, you know the the songs that are the 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 um, whatever is the French version of "I'm proud to be an American" tend to do better. But some countries, the 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 sort of public broadcaster just gets to pick the uh, the representative. And in that case, it could be something that that is really you know a slick production team, but maybe something that wouldn't win in a popular voting. I mean, I remember a, a couple of years ago, just just to 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 do one of those that they're trying to capture something that's inherently. Uh, uh, French about the country. Uh, the song from France was in Corsican, which, of course, Corsica. I'm, I'm Wikipediaing this. I don't know it off the top. Is actually a French island, sort of like off in, in the Mediterranean. That's sort of like you know between Italy and France, uh, and they have a language that is spoken there by by far less than a, a million people. Really, a, a small sort of subculture. And they they wrote an aria in Corsican and, and performed it. Didn't did not win, of course, but it does sort of like show that like some of these songs will sort of like try to be this attempt to sort of spread something that's unique about the culture to as long as you have the rest of Europe as a captive audience. And some are just going to be like their best attempts to like replicate American top 40 radio and those probably tend to do better so it is it's this sort of weird thing like like trying to win the republican primary for president um in order (laughs) and you have to cater to your base right right you have to go really far to the right um but then like you could wind up in this position where like you've espoused these these positions that make it very difficult for you to win the general election. So that could be what Eurovision selection is for some of these countries with very sort of like public anybody in that country can vote. Because like, you know, to to win Belarusian Idol or something, it really does help to have a song called I Love Belarus, which is all about how what a great country it is and how it's better than the rest of the or or to to, to quote um what, what I believe is is uh, from uh, the um, the Borat movie of uh, all other countries have inferior potassium is one of one of the lyrics of their national anthem from Kazakhstan. It's <laughs> quoted at the end. Um, but then, like you know, once you get to Eurovision, I love Belarus is not likely to win the, the general election. So it's it's a it's a fine line to walk. So you can uh, you can find out uh, more about uh, overthinking Eurovision. Um, if you visit, uh, if you visit YouTube and search for Overthinking It, uh, click on Otis to get to our channel and and subscribe to our channel so that you can uh, so that you can get um, get these videos. Uh, you can see Matt Belinky, uh giving you the the introduction uh, at uh, uh, the Overthinking Eurovision 2013 um, Cognitive Agenda Setting uh, video uh, from earlier this week, and Mark Lee reviewing the first three music videos uh, up this week. Pete Fenzel reviews three more, and I will take on four uh, videos at the end uh, at the end of the week. So uh, yeah, check that out. All right, into our main topic, which is um, you know if we had a sponsor, I would do the commercial now. You know, uh, someday, man, someday. Yeah, I know, right? Um, GI Joe retaliation. A real American hero uh, faces uh, faces down Cobra Commander again. Uh, Cobra Commander escapes from his tank, 
um, where he's helping Tom Cruise predict crimes before they happen. Yeah. And, and can I just say right off the bat, probably the biggest disappointment of the movie is that Cobra Commander is no longer played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But one of the... <laughs> that, it's, it's, I think, a measure of how far Joseph Gordon-Levitt has come in the past four years. To think, like, it's ridiculous, the idea that Joseph Gordon-Levitt could play the Cobra Commander. But back in 2009, he was probably really excited about that role. Well, and he got to show his face a lot uh, in that movie, even though he was, he was playing a dual role. So he was only showing his whole face in some of it, half his face in the other bit. In here, uh, in, in Retaliation, the Cobra Commander, I, I don't believe we see his face at all, except obscured by the tank for a couple of minutes. So, you know, there, yeah. there's, a, there's an anecdote, you know, Mel Brooks had about uh, in Spaceballs, they were going to put John Candy in like a full-on dog mask for his, uh, his role as Barf. And he said, well, if I'm going to put a mask on the guy, why am I paying for John Candy? So... <laughs> that I think is was was part of the thinking uh, of you know wh- why pay for Joseph Gordon Levitt if we're never going to let him actually do any acting. Acting with a capital yes. H. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. So well, I mean, I it's yes, I, yes, I did just insult everyone who's ever done any silent, you know, just acting without a voice and, and a face. Yeah, so little little guy named Suck it, David uh, Prowse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, sorry, Tom Hardy. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess Tom oh, Hardy no. has eyes. No, he got his eyes. He got his windows to the soul. It worked out just fine. That's true. It would be very painful for you. <laughs> For you, oh, epic burn! Like, but I was gonna say Kane, but that's I have wrestling on the brain this week. I should probably preface this discussion of the Rock's performance by mentioning that uh, magneted mag is magneted a, a word attached to my refrigerator right now are two tickets to WrestleMania, which is a week from this moment. Oh wow! So a week a week from now, I will be manic with wrestling. Um. So that, that, that perhaps like gives you something about my frame of mind going in to see The Rock sort of take the reins of the G.I. Joe franchise. Uh-huh. And, and according to the previews before the movie, every other movie that is going to be made from now on will also star The Rock. Right. Yes. Yes, we saw the trailer for, uh, for what, is it just being called Fast 6 at this point? Have we just, I, is, is that the shorthand? Fast and Furious 6. Yeah, I'm, not, the, I'm actually not there, sure. There, there's the no title. colon. There's no colon in the title like there is with the with, with these. Uh, we, well, yeah, we saw like th- an ASCII pictogram of a car and then a six. <laughs> what I can okay. what I can say is it's the the summer film that I am most excited for. Uh, I think uh, it did seem from that trailer that I, I you know I don't know how they can raise the stakes anymore at this point that the, the the car the car gang is going to have to be fighting aliens in the seventh one because I, I, otherwise I have no idea what. Uh, uh, how, how much bigger it can get? Also, raise the stakes in terms of overthinking a podcast, right? If not for Fast and Furious Seven, certainly for Fast and Furious Eight. Um, the uh, yeah, I mean, also raise the stakes in terms of vehicles, right? There's a tank uh, drag racing mm-hmm. in in Fast and Furious Six, and also uh, Vin Diesel, I think, explodes out of the nose of a plane. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed, in a muscle car, right? So uh, that. You know, b- beyond airplane, it it has to be about like, all right, Vin Diesel, we have to move the space shuttle on the back of a truck from you know from the airport where where the seven forty seven flew it into the science museum where it's going to be on display. Only you and your crack team of drivers can move the space shuttle. No, 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 Matt, you got it wrong. They're going to take the space shuttle out of mothball. 
uh-huh. right, and take it off to the, <laughs> the launch pad. And they're going to send it to space to fight aliens. Right. I, I, I definitely can't, can't wait till later this summer when we get to do the Fast Six podcast because that series is is fascinating. <laughs> that I don't know if anyone remembers the first the the first movie, The Fast and the Furious, but it is so much smaller and and more humble, and, and it's gotten blown up into this gigantic. It, it's it's fascinating to see like what what the whole thing has sort of mutated into over yeah. the previous six movies, and and the fact that um, Michelle Rodriguez is coming back is ridiculous she was she was very thoroughly killed off um and in a way it does not i mean i, I guess I'll, I'll defer like like wood chipper but, killed off or i mean how definitely we're talking about here i mean like she she dies and then like vin diesel spends the entire uh fourth movie attempting to avenge her including like confronting the guy who kills her at which point he like brags about like how he killed her and has no reason to lie it's not it's not that like <laughs> i don't know i mean I, I guess i'm just saying that like yes we don't see her like actually die on screen but like it's Let's just say I'm I'm very curious about like the story about like you probably thought I died two movies ago. Here's you know why the FBI had me go secretly undercover, and you know the, whatever. Anyway, I'm excited for it. That's all I'm <laughs> yeah, saying. It's, it's gonna it's gonna take some retconning. N- not unlike the, the rock, uh, not rock a- is like a reverse. He's like a reverse Samson, right? That he shaves his hair and suddenly he becomes this unstoppable Hollywood juggernaut. Whereas that like in the previous sort of ten years, he's never really. You know, like like a year ago, when he when he had hair, he was doing what is it like uh like faster, and he was doing um, I'm I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember like what what some of his like lesser sort of B movie action roles are over the previous uh, ten years, and then I feel I feel like The Rock is having a moment. You know, Esca- Escape to Witch Mountain. Yeah. Oh my God, Escape to Witch Mountain. That's right. He, but it's like somehow The Rock becoming bald has has done wonders for his career. He definitely seems to be trying to take a, a turn back into actual uh, action movies with a capital A M uh, after doing like the Tooth Fairy and whatnot. <laughs> over the after after right. he, he and Vin Diesel both, in fact, went through this weird phase where they were doing like the uh, Sergeant Nanny or whatever. Yeah, the right. they both did those. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And hey guys, still, so now, now that it's now that it's past thirty minutes into the podcast, should we actually start talking about show retaliation? <laughs> no. Let's, well, let's well just, GI Joe. Go ahead. Let's just dive right into it, right? Isn't it is this whole movie not uh, this like massive right wing fantasy allegory about how uh, it's really important to have the Second Amendment and to allow citizens to have unlimited arms in case the presidency is co opted by a shadow terrorist? Well, it's I mean that actually that argument works on a number of levels in the movie, right? Like it's important for citizens to have arms, and it's actually important that we stay. Uh, that we keep our nukes because Cobra yes. Commander is going to like drop a tungsten rod. Now, I, I actually meant to, to call Schechner and to ask. I know I was going to call Schechner too. <laughs> I was like, we need. To, how fast would you have to drop that rod for it to equal the destructive power of a nuclear bomb? Right. Because it's not exploding, it's merely hitting the ground very hard. 
For for those of you who didn't see the movie, the the super weapon, and this is it's it's funny because there's a fine tradition of sort of space bound uh, super weapons. I'm thinking of right off the top of my head. There there uh, in Die Another Day, the James Bond movie. There's like a heat ray from space that's going to blow up all the mines in the demilitarized zone. And then going back a few Bond movies, in Goldeneye, there's a, something that sends an EMP and blows up all the electronics in the area. This one is much simpler. All this one does is drop a piece of tungsten really fast. Right, and it hits the ground. It doesn't even drop. Drop it really fast. It just drops it. It's just really fast by the time it's fallen all that way. I believe I was like, there's the way that works. <laughs> yeah, the shadow president uh, says something along the lines like gravity does the rest of the work. Yeah, or maybe it's Cobra Commander. I can't remember. It, like, it did seem to be. It's, it's it's funny that they like make a point of mentioning that the fact that like it's gravity is what destroys the force that's kept you from flying into space all these years will now be your undoing. <laughs> they did make a. It did seem to be a selling point. That it was that we don't launch, we drop, and there's no radiation. Just the you know, just the flat out. Uh, uh, um, what's you know the uh, pruh, vocabulary failure? Uh, the, just the force of the of the of the impact does all the damage. There's no there's no radiation side effects and all that sort of thing. I, I they really so Col- made a point. So Cobra can go back in, you know, and build their bases rapidly afterwards. Uh, apparently, I'm I'm not really sure what the what the we, Matt and I were talking. Uh, after watching the movie, we weren't really sure what the goals were here, really, because with with a with a simul agent in the White House, Cobra kind of already runs things. I'm not sure why they had to take this next yeah. step. Yeah, why why is this better, right? If you, I mean, if you <laughs> have your hand up Jonathan Price's ass, I mean, if you have a Jonathan Price puppet on your elbow, <laughs> then like you're already running the world. You know, there are a lot of world leaders, but only one leader of the free world. Well, that's, I mean, we had an interesting email thread last week about, like, what makes Emperor Palpatine happy? That, like, like when he dissolves the, the Republic or, like, when he declares Emperor, himself... Like, Emperor Palpatine, what is best in life? Yeah, well, it's sort of like, is he a happy... When he's sitting in his throne room with nobody to talk to except for his, like, red-clad Imperial Guards, is he like, yes, I can't believe I pulled it off. I am, I am the greatest Sith of all time, and does he feel good about himself? And this is, like, a similar thing which is that like what is it that cobra commander's ultimate goal is at which point he just sits back and he's like yes mission accomplished well we tom and i were talking about that um uh, Tom and I were talking about that before, and there's a whole history because I, I I know that Tom is what was a fan of the of the cartoon in the '80s and also of the comic book series around GI Joe. So, like, what what's the end game for for Cobra Commander other than b- being in charge? It, it it is sort of it is sort of being in charge, and it is a there's an element of uh, some men just want to watch the world burn as well. Uh, <laughs> Cobra Commander in the comic books um, started out as a, a used car salesman. <laughs> Wait, um, seriously? Yeah, I did not no, know that. Who, who, for, who formed these sort of um, these sort of Amway esque. Uh, these schemes, which he would use to make a lot of money, which he, he would use to buy a lot of weapons, uh, which he <laughs> wanted to use, which he wanted to use to take over the government, um, and it, and it's it, it Cobra grew from like lean and humble roots in the. Um, it, it's all to do with uh, his brother who was killed, uh, not in Vietnam, but in a car accident coming home from the airport from his tour <laughs> in Vietnam. It's it's all very it's all very complicated and, and soap opera esque. I, I would love a deleted scene where just Cobra Commander is just trying to sell a Prius. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to try to do that impression, but you can't beat my else. prices. 
Yes. <laughs> You'll feel like you are once a man again behind the wheel. Something like that. I, I can't do Chris Lotta. That's the voice, the voice from the cartoon. They, they, they substituted a very, a very gruff voice with a lot of gravitas for the movie, which I don't think really suited him as well. Because Cobra Commander, that was, that was his origin in the comic books. His origin in the cartoon got retconned a bit. Later that we found out he was actually not entirely human which is an entirely other story. Uh, but they, they sort of wrote him not so much like Hitler, but more like Yosemite Sam, or he, he was sort of a hapless villain. Um, yeah. and, His biscuits uh, are burning. And, and they couldn't... Uh, they they couldn't go with such a menacing voice for that kind of character, so it was this high, whiny sort of uh, thing. <laughs> um, I have no idea where we were with this. Uh, Cobra Commander, uh, you... Cobra Commander's origins. What what is his end goal? Uh, I think he just, you know that that it, it, like a, like any Bond villain, he just wants to uh, stand at the top of the mountain for no particular reason other than, than to uh, uh, you know feel his own ego pulsing. Yeah, I would point to the uh, to the to the movie Megamind uh, that much more further explores this idea of like you know why the supervillain wants to conquer the world and what would the supervillain do. After he's conquered the world. The answer was just be pretty bored, actually. Um, but I want to just totally hijack this and bring us back to this whole, like, uh, right-wing Second Amendment gun enthusiasm subplot or message of the movie. Um, when I said earlier that, you know, this movie is some sort of, like, a right-wing fantasy allegory, I'm not entirely joking or exaggerating about that. Um, well, yeah, no, I definitely... I think it's, you, like, the, the movie's first, core... But I definitely got that yeah, vibe, yeah. It's, I think, like, the first original G.I. Joe movie did really well with, in shorthand, say, that demographic. And um, they wanted to, you know, give them... To, to shove the red meat uh, at them and give them something they could really chew on. Maybe. I don't know if I see the... the political implications as well of that i mean i know they're there but maybe it's just that i'm you know it's america it's a movie with guns you're soaking in it you can't really tell but um i think it was interesting the way they related to all of the weaponry as objects like like in bruce willis's house where everything pulls out of the drawers like an old navy ad and (laughs) and everyone's just kind of doing a little a little shopping as they get ready to go it's like the it's like the scene in the matrix where you know guns lots of guns and then they just have all these options to choose yeah. from and it's it's very it's a very almost a sensual approach to it and it's all about the objects and the gear and they take a lot of time uh in the movie to explain the gear and how the gear works and what the gear is called that the mechanics seem to be more important than the and this stuff is really important to us because of freedom or right. whatever so it, the it, politics of the of the scene in bruce willis's house though i mean it's this idea of um, he's a private citizen, right? He's no longer in the U.S. military or G.I. Joe or whatever. Right. And yet he right. still is allowed to have this insanely high-powered weaponry. And it's, it's his armed home, right? His home is his castle. But it's, okay. but it's not just that. Who is he going to attack at that point? They're going to attack the U.S. government. Like, they know that the U.S. government has been infiltrated, but what they're going to do is that there's a meeting that the U.S. government is having in, like, a secret armed location with the world leaders, and it's they are going secret. to... It's, it's like publicly announced, like, uh, Right, but they're, they're going to declare war on the U.S. government is basically what the third act is about, and they have good reason for doing... Here's the moment that really sort of, like, made me step back and be like, wow, this movie's going to a disturbing place, is that they find out uh, through the efforts of uh, Tyra Collette from Friday Night Lights that um, 
that uh, the the president's a clone. Uh, no, they're not a clone, but but he's Zartan. Um, he's the uh, the mummy from the the mummy movies. Uh, that <laughs> yeah. guy. Although you, it's you, nice, you never yeah, really it's, no, it's nice to know that Emotep is still working. You know. <laughs> I mean, barely. He's working in like two shots. <laughs> I mean, like the the very rare instances when he's not uh, when he's not Price. But here's the thing: so like they find out he's a clone, and at which point I'm I'm expecting it to be like we need to let people know. That's not what happens. The Rock is waiting outside, and they're like, "You need to shoot the president." Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That was really dark. The Rock is waiting there to shoot him in the face, and 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 almost does it, but but is is attacked at that point by Titus Pulo from Rome. <laughs> Um, and it's, yeah, there's this, this dark feeling that, that, I mean, tell me if this rings any bells here in America in the age of Obama, that the president is illegitimate. He is not who he says he is. He is not who you think it is. And that like citizens have to take up their second amendment rights to do something about this and to take back the country hey, from, you know, from these outsiders. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, show me Emotep's birth certificate. You can't, he's a mummy. <laughs> Oh, by the I mean, way, it's in, it's in a cuneiform somewhere. Okay, well, just a quick uh, step into the, in the political side of this for a moment. Um, we are seeing this movie right now in the uh, spring of 2013, where the gun control debate is really raging in the United States. Um, but remember that this movie was uh, originally was made in 2011 and originally scheduled to be released in the summer of 2012. That's true. In the middle of the presidential election. I mean, so it kind of works on both ends of it, right? Like, you know, like. Uh, Anti-Obama fever, you know, was it, it's I don't know if it's really dissipated much after the presidential election, but it was certainly more uh, in the public discourse uh, before, um, you know, last year, right, when it was originally scheduled to be released. But this year now we have this uh, intense fever pitch, this idea that the government is going to come and disarm people in the wake of the Newtown massacre and the subsequent push for additional gun control. So that is a serendipitous um uh, you think that's going to earn them any more dollars at the box office this weekend? Well, I, I do think it's interesting to think about, like, last year, the fact that they pulled this movie really at the 11th hour. I think we're about four weeks from release before they decided yeah. we're going to hold this a whole year. That's they were an actually doing measure to do. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they were... already invested a lot in promotion. They had had like a Super Bowl commercial at Super Bowl 2012. And so you have to assume that they had good reason to believe that this movie was not going to do well this movie was tracking very poorly and they needed to to do something they needed to either retool it or to wait or to something and i i i'm reading something on like you know the box office websites now uh it's doing well this weekend and it's expected to be i think even better than expected maybe maybe tracking on the high end of what they thought it could do so uh, gi joe retaliation a success in 2013 so the question is was this much ado about nothing would it have been successful last year or were they somehow right and that it would have bombed last year and that by waiting a year or that i mean the two things that i heard that they did was adding slightly more of channing tatum not much because i mean spoiler alert he's not in much of the movie um and converting the thing to 3d so that you could argue like oh they made it 3d and that that you know, save the box office. But 3D, I'm not convinced. I mean, yeah, I don't know. The 3D conversions, you know, don't tend to do don't tend to do as well unless you're like the Lion King or or I guess Top Gun did a 3D conversion and Star Wars I think is doing 3D conversions and like those will do. Uh, Jurassic in, Park is coming. Yeah, out. right. Those will do enormous business, but like. Uh, 
you know, no, it's not like you're not going to go or not go to GI Joe based on whether it's whether it's 3D. I mean, I heard I heard that this movie I read online on Deadline that this movie did an A minus cinema score, which is which is really the, yeah, which is the exit poll. So like you ask people walking out of the theater all jazzed from the movie uh, how they did, and and that's it's a good indicator of word of mouth, right? And like what what that's going to do. Um, so, uh, it also had the benefit of like a five or a four and a half day, uh, Easter, Easter weekend, but like, it wasn't an A minus cinema score for me, right? Like, oh, no, no. Uh, no, 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 no. it's like forehead slappingly dumb in so many different regards. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, I almost hesitate to say this because I feel like it reflects poorly on me. I thought the first one was a lot better. Superior. Um, I mean, part of it is that I don't know if anyone on the call has seen the first one. Um, but part of it is that the budget is significantly lower this time around. And I think the the best compa- it's you know it was the difference between like a, a two hundred million dollar real special effects extravaganza, you know, like like top of the line, you know, Transformers level special effects orgy versus like this, which is like you know a hundred and thirty million dollar, still a big budget movie. But like the the final action scene of the first GI Joe movie is there's like an underwater base under the polar ice cap, and they have to assault it in like little submarines. So, like, really, like, a, a huge sort of grand scope um, action scene versus, like, in this one, it's like, let's put the rock in a dune buggy. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's that's it, right? Like, you're not getting a lot of, like, oh, my God, the, the vision of this movie is huge, right? Like, to me, it's almost like I don't really see the $130 million up there. And, I mean, I think, I think they, they... Well, you they didn't, see it, you didn't story, see it in but, 3D, did you, right? No, I, I didn't see it in 3D. It's possible that it was really only like a $90 million movie with a bunch of overpriced... Yeah, I don't know. Effects. I don't know if that $130 million price tag is before or after the, the upconversion to... Um... Yeah, I'm just getting it off of Wikipedia. So, so I have... Uh, I actually have some information from Dave Schechner, who, uh, whom I have been texting uh, all this time. I asked him uh, about the super weapon that um, <laughs> involves a tungsten rod dropped from... Uh, a low Earth orbit satellite into the atmosphere. And uh, Dave's reply is, oh, that old chestnut. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he, he says that, that, yes, it would likely burn up uh, depending on its initial mass and its surface area ratio, uh, its, its mass to surface area ratio. So ideally, um, uh, uh, and, and Dave suggests that, that the storytelling of the movie is banking on people knowing that tungsten has a high thermal tolerance, uh, which is the reason it's, it's used in toasters and ovens and light bulb filaments and so forth, right? It can, it can get really hot without, without degrading. So, um, but there's a big difference, says Dr. Schechner, between the heat delivered from reentry into the atmosphere atmosphere uh and that from running a standard toaster so um so ideally uh it would be a tungsten sphere and uh better yet if it could be a tungsten sphere covered in uh ceramic breakaway heat shielding right and uh like like says dave uh the heat shielding that nasa uses on the underside of its reentry vehicles and so forth so you coat the sphere in, in ceramic scales right and drop it in the scales kind of fall away as they do on the uh, on the, no, the no, space no. shuttle this is just not nearly as phallic as a tungsten rod <laughs> right I mean, and so yeah. um, i think so i think Matt, what you're describing there what you're describing there is the plot to the upcoming connect 4 movie uh, <laughs> which 
which which is also mm. suffering from significantly lower budget because Battleship didn't do all that well. So, <laughs> so um so I asked, how large would it have to be to take out a major city like, for example, London? And so Dave says, um, uh, Dave says that uh, people talk about uh, city-busting asteroids being about the size of a football field. So if you imagine a sphere with a diameter of 100 meters uh, coated in uh, ceramic heat shielding, right? Um, it comes into the atmosphere. By the time it hits the ground, it's about the size of a school bus. Um, it's super hot. It's traveling at its terminal velocity. Uh, there's, you know, just a ton of momentum and it, uh, it hits the ground. Um, and Dave, Dave says it's the size of a school bus. One magic, magic school bus. (laughs) So, uh, that's, that's your science moment from Dr. David Schechner via, via text message. Um, speaking, speaking of the super weapon and, and the destruction of London, um, Spoilers, lol. No, actually, it's in the commercials, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, never mind. Yeah, uh, anyway, the, uh, did, did anyone else think that that was sort of, if not mishandled, at least misplaced in terms of this kind of James Bond? And to show you, I mean, business plot, you know, that, that it happens toward the climax of the movie with very little fanfare as opposed to earlier in the film as a demonstration of what we're up against and, oh, my God, we have to stop. Yeah, these playing. are the stakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I, I, it does seem to be Cobra's sort of modus operandi because, of course, in the first movie, they attempted to destroy Paris, managed to take out the Eiffel Tower before Channing Tatum stopped them. It was like it was a much more technologically advanced weapon uh, in the first movie that like it could, it dissolves metal so that like you and, and it's sort of like it's like a chain reaction so that like you start with the Eiffel Tower and then all the metal in the city of Paris falls apart and like people's wheels fall off their cars in a comical fashion. And then suddenly they're just sitting there on the street holding a steering wheel going what happened to the metal in my car um like like i said bigger budget of the first movie yeah it was it was, it was also, nano there was, a, there was a weigh-ins yeah it was na- i'm sorry was nanotechnology was na- nanotechnology that old chestnut of uh of, of right. science fiction uh weapon reentry. it did everything in that movie it, it destroyed things it built things it made, made zartan's face look like jonathan price yeah it did everything yeah, like if you drank every time they said nano in the first G.I. Joe movie, um, yeah. it would start to make sense at a certain point. Yeah, yeah the, I think the first movie was, it was definitely more consistent in tone than than this one was. There were a lot of interesting little fun character moments in this movie, but they didn't ever amount to anything. You know, just little bits of business that you, you almost want to believe actually happened right there on camera and weren't in the script. You know, what do you, what do you uh, think you have specifically? Uh, specifically, like uh, there's uh, one, one of the things that caught me off guard was there's a bit where they're um, they're they're torturing the president for information and they're they're beating him about the head with a blunt object and as they, as you they, do, like you do. And the character of uh, of the character of Firefly is like that's for the tax hike, and <laughs> and 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 the, and the president spits back, uh, well, you don't pay taxes, and he says. Well, it's not always about me. <laughs> like, what a weird, random uh, bit of banter to come out of nowhere. You yeah, know? absolutely. Hashtag, yeah, hashtag Teacot. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the entire prison sequence with Walton Goggins, um, which yes. is a little mini movie in and of itself uh, that I, I can't figure out what... It seems to me like they just expanded that on the day that they filmed it. I mean, the, the, because I, I can't imagine... Okay, in the script... Uh, loudmouth charismatic prison warden who will steal the movie for six and a half minutes and then will kill him right it didn't seem like it was part of the plan you know yeah i also mean the ninja flashback where did that come from 
That, that was from the first movie. That was like, you know, oh, if you oh, wanted to oh. know a lot more about... It was actually a, a resolution, yeah, a resolution to the story arc from the first movie, which had lots of ninja flashbacks. So can I, I mean, can we, can, can way, we talk can about... We put the RZA as the... Never mind, I'm sorry. I, I have an axe to grind about the RZA as the, the, the head of the clan of ninjas. <laughs> that was very strange, Represent I must say. the RZA, the Jizza, Raekwon the chef, <laughs> old dirty bastard. That is the greatest charades challenge of all time. Right. Yeah, that's that's an in-joke. I guess we can let the... Can we let the audience in on that in-joke? Yeah. We uh, we meet uh, annually, the overthinkers, for a, uh, for a, you know, a weekend together to rekindle our, our uh, old, you know, friendships and love of uh, overthinking. And uh, we play charades traditionally at these, at these gatherings. And I got uh, once as a charade clue... Um, Represent the Rizza, the Jizza, old dirty bastard, Raekwon the chef, and it, you know went on and on and on, naming all the the mem- the members of the Wu Tang Clan. Took me like twenty five minutes, but eventually someone got it. Um, of course, I had been uh, I had been just as much of a jerk and had put in the hat as a clue. Um, oh, beautiful for pilgrims' feet, whose stern impassioned stress. A thoroughfare for freedom beat across the wilderness uh, as, as, as a song lyric. Um, thoroughfare is a difficult word. <laughs> it's, it's a different, difficult word to act out. Okay, but I want to I like turn our uh, talk to the, the, actually the whole sort of Asian subplot of... Um, Which is where they did put the $130 million, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that... It was actually my favorite. I mean, I've gone on and on and on. We don't need to rehash this about the kind of the the visual gibberish, the kind of the kind of visual gibberish and kind of sensory barrage of a lot of of uh, action films. And this, a lot of the action in this was was um, of a piece with that. But th- this um, this sequence swinging back and forth on the ropes in the in the mountains was like lyrical, was sort of visually exhilarating, had a sense of of pacing, had a sense of stakes. Um, you know, in a way that the, just the kind of like loud noise and things blowing up and guns firing and moving all around doesn't have for me. It's just, it's so, as, as far as action movie storytelling is concerned, it's so, um, it's so far superior. So let me, let's punt actually for a second on the question of what the hell is all this, all this kind of Asian stuff doing in like this sort of uh, ninja stuff doing in a real American hero movie. And, and, Actually, uh, ask the question, Tom. You said that this was actually kind of taken from one of the GI Joe comic books. Well, yeah, that the, that action sequence in particular, and, and the entire um, the entire sequence on the on the mountain was taken from uh, one of the Marvel issues uh, called Silent Interlude, which was a uh, a dialogue free uh, issue of the comic uh, that went around kind of those same lines. It was uh, uh, Storm Shadow's sort of enclave up there and Snake Eyes came in to do a rescue operation or a, a sabotage operation of some sort. And and it was all done. Uh, it was all done via action. There was no no dialogue uh, to no dialogue to speak of in the in the issue. And that's that one section in particular. But the all of the um, all of all of the Asian influence on the martial arts uh, sort of that seems like an anomaly in the middle of all this other stuff is actually all a direct result of the creator of the comics, uh, a guy uh, named Larry Hama, um, who not only developed when they, 
when they relaunched the toys in the early 80s, which is what all of this is, is sort of springs off from, he wrote the character profiles on the back of the action figures. Uh, he he kind of created this show Bible for the cartoon, and then that went off in a different direction, and he created uh, the comic book. In fact, wrote 150 issues of the G.I. Joe comic book for Marvel and was an editor at Marvel all through the 80s and early 90s. And that was a preoccupation of his uh, in particular, he was a, a student. He's a, a Japanese American and a student of, of, uh, of various martial arts. And uh, uh, that influence sort of crept in it, it, way more in the comic book than it ever did in the cartoon. The cartoon had the Cobra Ninja, Storm Shadow, who was there. I think just because they decided at one point Snake Eyes was a ninja, uh, and so they needed <laughs> like like yeah. like the the cartoon was like the like the Justice League and the Legion of Doom. Like everyone has their uh, their analog on the other side of the fence that has a power similar to theirs, and so that was kind of the logic of bringing in an, another ninja character. Uh, but in the comics, it was a little more character based and a little more uh, sensible. It, it strikes me as interesting because the the idea in those. You know, the idea in those narratives is sort of allegiance to person, right? Like allegiance to a teacher, to a sort of martial arts master who is your teacher, um, the hard master, right? In the case of the, uh, right. In the case of this film and, and sort of allegiance to principle or country, right? And those, those two things sort of get conflated in, in a way that's interesting to me in, uh, uh, in in this movie, you know, right? Why why um, why is Snake Eyes fighting for? You know, shouldn't Snake Eyes be meditating somewhere, right? Like, why isn't he fighting for? Uh, why why is he fighting for the United States? You know, it, it is interesting. It's it's it, it, it's sort of counterintuitive to what to what you would uh, what you would assume, especially based on the backstory that they give him in the movies, which is that he was raised, you know, in the dojo and. You know, that's sort of that he was sort of adopted by those people and uh, who live there. And that's his home, um, as opposed to the in the comic book, again, where he's a he's a Vietnam veteran. Both he and Storm Shadow are Vietnam veterans who who served together. And uh, later, the Storm Shadow takes Snake Eyes back to his back to his family. In, he's he's also Japanese American. He takes him back to his, you know, his um, uh, uh, what's the word? extended family uh, in Japan to, to train Uh and that's where the the whole ninja sort of thing came from in the comic book. So he was already a part of the military, uh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. situation before before taking on the martial arts in that way. And so that's m- maybe a little more sensible, but it still is a weird dichotomy between the two, mm-hmm. especially the fact I that. I was going to say, especially the fact that in, in in the movie, like there's a scene where Storm Shadow is throwing the 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 shuriken, the throwing stars at him, and he's shooting them out of the air with an Uzi, which is an interesting uh, symbolic um, old and new tech, war technology. Well, and it's I mean right, yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, right? Like that that the bullets from the Uzi. Um, you know, don't hit the person right on the other mm-hmm. side of the hallway. They're just, uh, they're just for the, the throwing stars. Mm-hmm. It's like every time there's a scene in a, every time there's a scene in any kind of action film where one person has another person hostage and that person gets shot in the back by someone who's coming to rescue the hostage. I, I, I see that all the time in movies and television and I, wouldn't the bullet go through the person into the other person? Shouldn't you be thinking about that? Cause it's always, they aim for center mass. Wouldn't, shouldn't you be thinking about that when planning your rescue effort? So you don't accidentally kill the person you're trying to save. It's uh it's, I it's it crazy. I tell you, I think it depends on the power of the gun. 
um, like the caliber right. of it and like the velocity of it, like a, a, an enormous like sniper rifle sure could, could penetrate all the way through, but like a, a smaller handgun would, uh, would might not, might not penetrate fully through the flesh. Oh, listen to me. I'm sounding like a gun gearhead here. So <laughs> back off here. Give me a little second amendment extinguisher going. Right. Do you have a, uh, right. Do you have a, a bunch of semi-automatics like uh, underneath your forks and knives in your kitchen drawers? I don't know, but if I did, it's a constitutional right. No, one can take that away from me. Just saying, just saying. Um, yeah, I mean, shooting actually shooting uh, someone else through yourself. Um, you know, Bruce Willis is in this this film, and he uh, he does yeah, it in, second to, second to last Die Hard movie in in Live Free or Die Hard, right? Uh, uh, in that great scene, Yippee Kaye, Mother Bang. Um, right, because he wasn't right. allowed to say it. That that was when they they flirted with PG thirteen. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I did think one of the weirdest scenes in this movie was at the end when the president is having this big televised ceremony to honor the Joes, and Snake Eyes is in the ceremony, still in the full, you know, <laughs> refusing to reveal his face, refusing to speak. And right. it's just like, imagine if the president of the United States actually did give a medal to like. Here's the thing: like, I understand that like Snake Eyes wants to fight for the United States. That's great, but like. Doesn't he have to like observe military protocol? Like, doesn't he have to speak at some point if he wants to fight for the United States? Also, doesn't he have to take like a photo ID? He's got to take that helmet off for that, right? It's weird. I mean, like, like <laughs> I, the, and it's somewhat contradictory because I think that the idea of the first movie is that like he, the the backstory is that he refused to speak because he took a vow not to speak till he avenged his master, and I feel like. Although in the second movie, they sort of retconned it and be like, maybe you didn't actually avenge your master because we don't know the full truth of what happened. I feel like he, I don't know. I mean, I, I, obviously, I don't remember it well enough. But certainly by the end of the second movie, if that was the vow, it's been fulfilled. And he could go ahead and take off the mask and like speak and live a normal life. Although at this point, yeah. his, his vocal cords are probably atrophied. <laughs> hey, let's talk about the other weird thing about the, the final scene in the movie. In fact, the last shot of the movie. Right, where uh, Bruce Willis's character gives the Rock character General Patton's gun. It's like, you know, uses to kill Cobra Commander, essentially. Uh-huh. Um, and then what does the Rock do? He just, like, points in there. It's like, bam! In the <laughs> middle of fires it in the air in the <laughs> middle of Washington, D.C. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did wonder about that the entire time. Because it was, it took a while for them to get to that point. Like, they were, they were slowing it down to observe the gravitas of the moment and the import of, of him taking the weapon. And, like, almost in slow motion, he flirts with raising it, then pulls it down, then halfway raises it, then fully raises it, and then shoots it. And the whole time I'm thinking, he's not really going to shoot, really. He's not really going to shoot, really gonna is he? He's not race. really going to shoot. And we're supposed yeah, to they... just take it back and just be like, Jesus. <laughs> what the hell? The president's no. standing right there. <laughs> The real president this time, and I mean, it also got me thinking about like, what is it? What is it that we're that we want him to do? To co- here's the thing: like at, at this point, the British have a lot more skin in the game against Cobra Commander than the Americans, <laughs> right? That's true. That that like there are millions of lives on on you know the, the blood on Cobra Commander's hands is is really hard to fathom. Um, you, and, and so it's like, does the rock have the right to shoot Cobra commander just because he killed Channing Tatum? Um, or is it like, are you, are you morally bound to like bring him to the hog? Of course. But like, you know, this, the, I'm sorry, the Hague, I, I'm rusty on my, what is, what is that? Is that, um, I don't even know what language 
that for a second, be... I thought you were talking about a Joe vehicle. I was like, I don't remember the hog. Uh, yeah, the, hog, the hog's the, rock, the, the rock's dune buggy. But I mean, exactly. it just it goes along with this idea that, like, when you find out that the president is an imposter, you don't try to, like, inform people and, like, get you know, go through the chain of command. You just take him out and you worry about, like, what happens to the United States later. Um, and it's like if you find Cobra Commander, you shoot him in the head with Bruce Willis's gun and you worry about, like, what the British will think about that, like, later. Oh, by the way, speaking of um, like the consequences to the the people of England, the United Kingdom, after losing their capital city of London and presumably millions upon millions of lives, um, did you guys notice that in uh, leading at the beginning of the final scene, the award ceremony scene, um, there's uh, some sort of like newsreel or voiceover type of thing that's basically saying um, things are back to normal and the rebuilding is going along. And that's basically the way to like sweep under the rug. The like, fact that I'm is there anything else to rebuild besides England and like maybe that one fort? Yeah, that little island in South Carolina. Like it actually wasn't that bad for anybody else. Have we seen England destroyed on screen quite as thoroughly as that before in a film? I mean, assuming it's not part of the overall world being destroyed. Yeah, no, I was I was seems- about to say that's that's the first. I mean, we've seen New York blown up a whole bunch of times. You I, know, I said England. I'm, I say England. I meant London. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's not normally a city of choice for that kind of wholesale destruction. Yeah, although uh, there was there was a big uh, sequence in the second Fantastic Four movie where there is a uh, the, the Silver Surfer has created a large hole through the Earth, which comes out in the Thames, and the Fantastic Four is trying to deal with this. And one of the consequences is the the what is it the the London Wheel or you know the giant Ferris wheel is sort of like about to fall down, and the Fantastic Four have to sort of join forces to like keep it in place long enough for everyone to get off before it plunges into the Thames. Uh, uh-huh. But no, certainly not the whole city destroyed. Right, a couple of things on this. Remember again about the whole timing of this movie, summer twenty twenty twelve. What was happening then? Olympics in London, right? Oh, that's um, so right. it would have been on the on the uh, more in the popular imagination. But the other thing about this movie um, that I think I remember from the original GI Joe movie is they were very intent, very deliberate in making this a movie that was suitable for international markets and not just an American movie, right? Because the this phrase that we mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, "real American hero," is not at all, uh, from what I understand, in the first GI Joe movie, and it's definitely not in the second GI Joe movie, right? Yeah, they that's why they have the first movie that it's international team that it's it's ba- it's not even based in the United States. They have like a base in the desert somewhere in like Africa, right? Yeah, so that is true. To that point, like Byung Hun Lee is like, an enormous star in Korea, and that's why he's in this movie. He was he's in this franchise. Right. And then I don't know, like the destruction of London. Uh, it's uh, so that uh, the people in England feel really bad about their city getting destroyed and want to see this movie as well. I'm not really sure. And I mean, I, I, the overseas box office is great. I think it might make more money overseas than it does in the United States. That's not the, that, the path of the first one. Yeah. Yeah. That's not unusual anymore. Right. Um, so I, it's, I, it's interesting. The um, Yeah. I just remember that uh, England, uh, London is also under threat in the uh, in the Star Trek sequel that's coming out in a couple of months. Uh, I, I, I recall from the trailers that there's there's a terrorist incident that either happens there or is planned to happen there and has to be stopped uh, because a lot of this new Star Trek movie is strangely earthbound. But yes, uh, London specifically, uh, I believe, is a target. So I don't know. It's a trend of some sort. It's all about Downton Abbey. You know, mm-hmm. England. That's right. Now. Oh, Down I was about to say it's all about it's all about Sherlock in the person of Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch, the actor uh, yes. with the coolest name. Yeah. Uh, so I barely recognize him without the curly locks in the trailer, although I recognize the voice certainly. 
I read something online about two more seasons of Sherlock, which I'm I'm glad to see that they've signed on for that. This the the exactly. coming the coming one and one more. Thank God. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That ain't it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to wait. I, I want to quickly address what I thought was by if far he had the saved the girl from the Orientalist circle of de- circus of death, Dianu. If he had infiltrated a, you know, Bedouin tribe to save Irene Adler from getting beheaded, uh, spoiler alert, Dianu, you, you know? You realize that, that you're comparing Sherlock to God at this point. <laughs> Not that I'm arguing with you. I'm just pointing it out. Um, that's a, that's a standard. In fact, I think, I think there may be – I think Romania may get the Dianu treatment uh, uh, in the um, – you know, right? If a countertenor had just never mind, um, watch yeah. the watch and the I'm, YouTube, watch it, subscribe to yeah, go subscribe to the YouTube channel because there are some in a, in a couple weeks. I'm gonna go into yeah, there'll be a lot of Romania. There, about. there are some gems. Anyway, sorry. Um, um, last last topic. Yeah, no, I wanted to talk about what I thought was the movie's most fun scene, which is where Jonathan Price gets all the world's nuclear powers together to launch his evil plan. <laughs> yes. Which I'm going to point out, I mean, like, first of all, like, Jonathan Price having so much more fun than anyone else in the movie, uh, and yes. just a pleasure to watch. Um, also, the plan only works if you assume that all the countries will fire all their nuclear weapons and then self-destruct all their nuclear weapons. Um, and, and leaving nothing left and, and, and thus disarming the entire world in about five minutes. Um, also, I mean, I do think it's worth pointing out that like the, the representation of the nuclear nations of the world is different than if there was an actual nuclear nonproliferation. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, the, um, the website, uh, the Wikipedia page for the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. Um, the only official, uh, publicly recognized nuclear states are the United States, Russia, the UK, France, and China. And that also known to have nuclear weapons are uh, India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel. But like none of those have like come out and said, like even Israel, which is like everybody knows they have nuclear weapons. They don't like come out and like talk about it. And like we don't come out and talk about it. Um, And so like they would never be invited to a a nuclear conference, certainly not openly that way. Um, but it also, I mean, it, it is a so the whole evil plan is based on the idea that like we're going to have a super weapon in space and nobody else will have anything to retaliate with, um, which seems it seems even like you know in in a world of of where like every action movie has to have a stupid evil plan, this is a pretty sort of <laughs> half baked yeah. evil plan um, uh, that like it's not like England can't. You know, it's like, oh, we blew up our, like, five nukes. It's like we're helpless to do anything about our largest city being blown up. Especially because the entire thing is controlled from that one single suitcase. So it's it's not really the giant super weapon you have to fight against. It's the guy with the suitcase. It's not like, you know, a major, uh, you know, Hercu- oh, Herculean oh. challenge. Oh, the suitcase. That, that, that was just the one moment that really solidified the entire movie for me was when, you know, all chaos is breaking loose and, you know, the G.I. Joes are attacking. Uh, at some point, I think Cobra Commander tells Firefly, like, protect the suitcase. It's all that matters. <laughs> it's basically yeah. like, this is the MacGuffin. They <laughs> yeah, think you, Commander Exposition. 
<laughs> also, I mean, Matt, can, can I bring up one more thing? Because this really jumped out at me, like at some point in the movie. Yeah, you were as as I was a huge fan of the most recent Mission Impossible movie, a uh, Ghost Protocol, and I yeah, think I think great. I remember you liking this too. And I feel like this movie had a lot of parallels. First of all, it's about this sort of secret elite team that is sort of framed for an act of terrorism and then disavowed by its own government. And then like, there's only a few members that sort of survive this sort of purge and they have to go rogue. They're, they're now like cut off from official support. And they're like, we have to like clear our names and we have to figure out who's really behind this and like tell the world. So that part is the same, but also the third act being like, we need to get this briefcase and push this button before (laughs) this horrible thing happens is a very similar setup. Even the idea that like, there is, there is like a main bad guy and then there is like a subsidiary bad guy and they sort of split up at the end and and your forces have to be split up and you have to send you know sorry you have to send scotty from star trek to like fight one bad guy while like tom cruise goes and fights another bad guy in like a really futuristic garage um but i mean ghost (laughs) protocols is great and i think i mean like way better than this movie both both in terms of like the quality of the script and the quality of the effects and and the cast and i mean you know um, but I, I definitely feel like the, the idea that like there's this briefcase and there's a button on the briefcase is like a very useful sort of MacGuffin to be fighting over. Yeah. I mean, I don't think of him as, uh, um, I don't think of his, you don't think of him as Scotty, Scotty, <laughs> Scotty from Star Trek. I think of him as, as like Nicholas Angel from Hot Fuzz. Sean right? of the Dead. Yeah. Oh, Sean yeah. of the Dead. Right. Um, yeah, that was a futuristic thing. I uh sure, fair enough. I mean like as far as as far as the concept goes, but I think the storytelling was so far superior in in Ghost Protocol, right? Like give me Tom Cruise on a building um any day. I, you know what? It's it's because like that like we understand that. The Ghost Protocol uh, and Brad Bird directing that movie, right? Like tapped into things. It's why the it's why the um it's why the swinging in the mountain sequence was so good. Like everyone understands being afraid of falling, right? Like everyone understands uh, being high, uh, you know, and sort of stumbling or feeling out of control or feeling like you don't have your balance, you know? And so like, give me Tom Cruise, like climbing a, uh, you know, climbing the, the, the Burj Khalifa with a sticky glove, uh, over any of the destruction visited on any of the things destroyed in, um, in uh in gi joe retaliation the i the video game parallels also were something that that stuck out for me just the way like especially in the early parts of the movie the sort of extremely economical way with with graphics and with voiceovers that the the um the kind of the levels were laid out and even in the raid on the in the raid on the pakistani nuclear facility it was it was like um we're going to level three was I think a line that you heard in, in the voiceover and that, you know, that could be, uh, I don't know, like call of duty, right? Like that, that, uh, yeah, that, that, which of course they, they actually play at one point. And I don't, I don't think that was like, you know, a sort of generic equivalent of call of duty. I think that was actually product placement from call of duty. Right. Yeah. Um, which is, which is another example of, you're talking about the difference between this and mission impossible. And I think it all just comes down to, you know how many masters the makers of this movie had to serve. You yeah. know they, they they can't put together a, a sensible structure for a movie like Mission Impossible Four because there's just so many, you know, so many dongles you have to add on to the side in order to get every make everyone happy. 
um, it, it's just a weird Frankenstein of a movie. And all these kind of, you know, uh, franchise movies are, are like that. You know, the Transformers movies are like that. And, and it, which is because I, I think you can make a movie. You could have made a movie as good as Mission Impossible 4 out of this premise, uh, out of this um, fabric. Um, but I just think along the way, it just gets, you know, beaten into whatever shape uh, all these different people want it to be. And it ends up, you know, coming out the way it is. So. All right. Yeah, I mean, like, just to be clear, I think we all had fun with the movie. It's not like oh, we sure. all walked out yeah, sort of grumbling. Expense, but like, yeah. yeah, but like, but like that, that having been said, like the movie is kind of a glorious mess. And that, like, it's sort of very sloppy. It's very, it's a very commercial focus group to within an inch of its live product. There are a lot of scenes that don't really make sense. I still don't understand what the character of Jinx was there for, besides there to be, like, another girl. Her and Snake Eyes are supposed to have, like, a mistrust, but, like, the Rizzo was, like, explaining it to me so quickly, I don't really understand. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, well, like, a, a lot a, of things that, yeah, don't really add And, and by the That's, way, like, like uh, the, her story arc with Bruce Willis at the end saying, oh, by the way, I knew your father, and, and sure, he'd right. be proud of you. Like, the most unsatisfying end to uh, uh, to a story arc, you know, in recent right. memory. And, and he told me he really wanted to name you Brenda. That's why I kept uh, calling you that for no reason and then never explained why. Uh, yeah, it's know. weird that he kept calling her that. Was that just his way of being like a gruff, sexist old dude who sort of like partially redeems himself at the end by being like, you're allowed to drive a car while I go and shoot the guys. <laughs> so, 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 so Brenda wasn't a, wasn't a name specifically, but more of a title. Uh, that person's a real Brenda. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, with not that, unlike not not unlike the Joes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> with that, uh, I think we might have to leave it there for this week because we have gone way over our hour. But um, this, I mean, this was an astonishing cinematic achievement. Uh, has Oscar written all over it? I think you know. Next uh, next March, we'll be seeing this um, seeing this film again. Uh, a year from the march in which we originally saw it. We'll be seeing it at the, the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. Anyway, um, so you can uh, join the conversation on G.I. Joe Retaliation by uh, emailing podcast at overthinkingit.com, to, uh, by calling or texting 203-285-6401, or uh, by joining the conversation in the comments on the show notes for this episode. Um, mark your calendars for the Fathom Events uh, presentation of Best of Both Worlds parts one and two on Thursday, April 25th and, uh, the ensuing, uh, overthinking it online meetup. Uh, if you don't make it to one of the in-person meetups in the, the major cities, um, you, uh, should subscribe to our YouTube channel, search for overthinking it on YouTube and see the Eurovision videos. You should visit overthinking it today, April 1st, or visit overthinking it.com slash underthinking it. Uh, if you don't make it on the first to see what the heck all the fuss is about, uh, this podcast will be back. This is, uh, we're going to, we're, we're edging up on episode 250 guys. That's pretty exciting. We don't have anything planned. I mean, we've always said for all the big anniversaries that we're going to plan something and it never, it never seems to happen. Um, but we got two more episodes until 250. So, you know, leave some comments in the show notes, uh, you know, tell us what we should do for, uh, tell us what we should do for 250. And, um, we probably won't do it cause we're busy producing a video series, but we'll definitely, we'll definitely talk about it. Matt, before we sign off, I just want to say apologize to the folks on Twitter who asked us questions because I asked. 
for people <laughs> to ask us uh, to, to submit questions for this podcast on Twitter. But um, I just remembered it now when we're totally out of time. So um, we'll have to address, we'll address them in the comments. Did we happen uh, to answer any of them accidentally, at least? Uh, no? Uh, no, not really. No, no, you didn't no, no. think you didn't think we were going to be able to get a whole hour and twenty minutes out of GI Joe, <laughs> did you? No, we, I mean we got like an hour out of it, and then twenty minutes out That's of your That's pretty much the length. Of the movie's only like an hour and a half. So, <laughs> um, hey, uh, oh, one one listener feedback. Uh, listener Vera wrote in uh, to say that the overthinking it podcast got me through uh, a road trip through Idaho and Montana and across Florida and back. Gentlemen, she says, I thank you. Uh, thank you, Vera. Thank you for listening. Um, Who states I'll- next to each other? Or she sort of listened to us on and off? I don't know. Yeah, that's a strange road trip with with like uh, car trips intervening right in it. Um, <laughs> So uh, yeah, okay, fair enough, uh, Mark. Maybe maybe you can copy paste the Twitter uh, the the tweets into uh, into the show notes on the episode, and we can yeah, all yeah. we can all get busy replying to them, and that's how we will <laughs> handle the listener feedback for this episode. Uh, we'll be back with two forty nine next week. Uh, until then, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't deserve. I'm a real American hero. You sound a little bit like Cobra Commander when you talk like Avi Fierstein. <laughs> I demand to take it over for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I oh, demand from all of I demand from all of you unquestioning <laughs> allegiance. I was once a man. That's it. <laughs>